The economics of food will uncover data and systems that is usually left to speculation and sometimes even to myth-making. Listen to Justin Russell talk about his study in marine shipping logistics about the Louisiana fishing industry. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. Hi, we're here today with Justin Russell. He's recently completed an MBA in marine shipping, shipping logistics. Sh- marine shipping logistics. And he's written a great paper about Louisiana and the uh, fishing industry here. So I thought it would be really an interesting thing for us to talk about. Welcome. Thank you so much. And congratulations on your new baby. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Okay, so tell me how you came to get this particular MBA. Well, for the past six or so years, I was working on boats, mostly tugs in the Gulf of Mexico and on the East Coast, uh, along with a little bit of time on supply boats, uh, working with the the oil uh, rigs and and, uh, facilities out in the Gulf. And during that time, I had kind of determined I didn't want to spend my entire career on the water. It's being gone half, half the time was is a tough life. And so I started looking around and found a program out of Middlesex University in London that allowed me to complete my my master's degree while I was working on the water. Because obviously, I couldn't really do traditional schooling being I was gone all the time. And so I found a program that focused on maritime shipping and logistics. And during the course of study, we were told that there was a, a thesis project um, that was the, the final project and to keep an eye on on topics that we might be interested in. And I started out thinking about Louisiana from a, an infrastructure point of view because there, there are some really interesting challenges with access. The Mississippi is a huge conduit of commerce. And so I, I started looking at, at these large-scale projects, and I sort of found that I really didn't, didn't care. It was, it was too impersonal. And through some friends and contacts, I became interested in the fishing communities. There are some really diverse communities here and some really unique challenges and I, I started looking into that, and, and it, it was really fascinating from a, a variety of standpoints, both the technical challenges as well as the cultural challenges and the history. So I started looking deeper into, into the different facets of that and, and ended up choosing the shrimping industry, um, which is quite embattled for a variety of reasons. And basically, I, I narrowed in on that and, uh, and started doing some research, and and it sort of coalesced into a, a something that was the intersection of of sort of my professional uh, life at the time on the water, working with boats and and uh, transportation, and then also 
uh, in my personal life, I love, I love food and cooking. And so it, it was an interesting thing from that side of things as well. It's interesting how food touches everything, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I guess we all need to eat. So, yes. <laughs> so how did you separate the cultural aspects from the statistical aspects that you need to create this study of a system? Um, I, I wouldn't say that I separated them particularly. I had to look at, at, at both sides of that. It's tough because the culture of fishing in Louisiana is so ingrained and so historic. You have the uh, native people who, who fished here for, for you know, generations, centuries, and who, who are still involved. And then the immigrants who came in, the Cajun culture, the Bayou Cajun culture is, is very steeped in, in fishing and aquatic hunting. And then all of the, the different populations, the Croatians who came in and did oysters, the, there, were, there were Filipinos and Chinese, and the, obviously the huge Vietnamese community, you know, it's, it's something like one in five shrimpers in, in Louisiana is, uh, is Vietnamese. And so it, it's tough to separate that. For me, the challenge was finding, was finding how the populations influenced the statistics, sort of, uh, and in terms of sort of solutions to some of the problems I found within the, within the, the supply chain, it was f- figuring out who needed the help. And I think the statistical part of it helped me to narrow in on, on who uh, could use the help and who didn't need it. There's, there's sort of a shotgun approach that government sometimes takes where they'll say, okay, the shrimping industry as a whole needs help. We're going to... We have let for for the around number. Let's say we have a hundred million dollars, and we're going to put it into the shrimp industry. That doesn't necessarily help because a lot of the time, the people who are able to access that capital are the people who are already doing okay. And so, for me, it was sort of finding the um, the people who who actually needed the help. How do we how do we focus on them? And that's where the statistics of it allowed me to, to get a lens on on the different communities and, and their needs. Okay, so f- first, give us an overview of your your study. Okay, so I, I looked at the, like I said, I started with sort of just the fishing industry in general, and that was, that ended up being far too broad. There's, there's so many facets to that from regular fin fish um, all the way to crawfish, you know, with everything in between oysters and crabs and everything. And so I, I focused down on the shrimp because there's a, there's a lot of information there. Um, I was able to get in contact with the wildlife and fisheries department. They were super helpful. A guy named Jack Isaacs there was great and gave me a lot of information. So I, I had, I had more to work with. Um, but the, the upshot was that I focused on, on the shrimp supply chain and, sort of the bottom half of it. The, the supply chain essentially is the shrimp, the shrimpers themselves, the people who are actually in the boats catching the shrimp. And then they take the shrimp to the dock. And there's a, there's a guy at the dock who, who buys them. And then they're, uh, they go up to um, a processor and then to a wholesaler and then to the retailers. And what I found was that as you move up the chain, um, from the shrimpers up to the retailers, things become more and more secure. 
the the least secure position is the shrimpers themselves because they are subject to all kinds of things. Weather, uh, commodity shrimp are a huge problem for the local shrimping industry. About 90% of the shrimp consumed in the United States are imported. Is that what you mean by commodity shrimp? Uh, not always, but, but yes. The majority of the shrimp coming in are um, for consumption of everything from, you know, Popeye's, you know, popcorn chip shrimp to the all-you-can-eat buffet at a Red Lobster or something. These are not super high-quality shrimp. Are they are they farmed or are they wild caught? Most of them are well. I shouldn't say most. A lot of them are farmed. A lot of the ones from India and Thailand, for instance, are farmed, and there's not a lot of environmental control. Uh, there's there's not a lot of transparency. So you don't know what they're being fed. You don't know what the conditions are. The quality's low. And that being said, the demand in the U.S. is so great for shrimp that domestic production cannot meet that. And so I, I was trying to see, okay, how, how can we modify the way that business is done in Louisiana so that the superior product, because it is an amazing product, I mean, Louisiana shrimp is legitimately famous for being delicious. How do, how do you sell into markets that are willing to pay a price that supports everyone in the supply chain? That's sort of the crux of it. I wanted to see how, how can we make some modifications to this system that allow the, the components of the chain to be profitable? Because right now, they are not always profitable. A lot of these, a lot of these uh, shrimpers in particular are hand-to-mouth. I mean, it's, it's a subsistence business, and that honestly threatens the, the whole viability of the industry because parents are, are not encouraging their children to follow in their footsteps. And by and large, this is a family business. These, these people have handed down to their children their, their method of living, and now they're not doing that because it's so hard to make a living. And it's changing lifestyles and yeah, all of that. Exactly. That's, uh, it's really interesting. Post-Katrina, when aid was available, but when you applied for it, you had to have tax returns and you had to be able to show losses and mm-hmm. whatever, we found that because of barter and basically an uh, alternate economy that existed among the fisher people and then people they interacted with where they give fish for pig and mm-hmm. all that sort of thing, and that they were... They were giving some of their fish to their mother-in-law or whatever because she didn't. She was living on social security or whatever. Um, nobody could actually document their losses, right? And there was no actual cultural component to the application that would allow for this kind of lifestyle to be reflected in numbers, right? And. Um, uh, so that people were really not being able to get compensation for, and the same thing happened after the BP oil spill. You couldn't get compensation because you couldn't prove your loss with these government documents like tax returns and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. There, um, There's an organization, um, Coastal Communities Consulting, uh, which Sandy Wen is the director over there, and, and she... Um, became quite well known within the Vietnamese community because 
for that exact reason. Her company helped people navigate the documentation process. But yes, exactly. For the, for the majority of the industry, that kind of assistance is not available. And, you know, it, it's a kind of thing where you might know how to fish, but that doesn't make you a business person. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the business education component hasn't been there. And there are, there are some programs being looked at um, within the, the Louisiana education system to, to give some technical assistance. But by and large, you're exactly right. That, that assistance hasn't been there, and so the knowledge isn't there. And it makes it really, really difficult to have the, the financial records necessary to, to gain that, that government aid when it's available. Also, I think that a lot of the lifestyles haven't been documented. Right. And so this alternate economy, which has existed for a very long time and is really independent in many ways from the more general economy, mm-hmm. which allows people to continue to do this work, whether it's lucrative or not. Right. It's hard to document, but it's also not been studied very much. I mean, when people talk about, oh, people are going to lose their their livelihood and their way of life. Right then you you don't have a lot to document that way of life. Right. Yeah. So you uncovered all of this in your study. Yeah, I I did some deep dives and I was lucky to be able to to have access to some folks who have have been in the trenches so to speak. Um Julie Falgu is is the um is is over at Louisiana Sea Grant, uh, an LSU program and she she was a shrimper herself. She owned several shrimp boats and was in the industry for a long time before she moved over to sort of the educational side. And she gave me a ton of insight into um, some of the, the difficulties of, of being a shrimper, of being a woman shrimper as well, because that's a whole that's a whole different uh, complication. There there are there are some cultural challenges to to being a woman on the water a lot of the time. And so she gave me some insight. And then I also had a, a few conversations with, with people, you know, from the environmental side uh, who are looking at the impacts of, of different proposed environmental shifts within the fishery, such as the Mid-Barrietaria sediment diversion. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to talk to Corey Miller, works with uh, Coalition to Restore Coastal Louisiana, and he was the lead on a project um, that studied that exact project called Shrimping with Diversions, and he's he was a great resource. So I, I had a bunch of different sort of viewpoints of uh, of the industry, and that that allowed me to kind of pull it apart in a way that I, I don't think I could have done just from the literature. So mm-hmm. Yeah. And so go on with your, your study and what you were looking at and what you determined and all of that. So I sort of came to the idea, <clears throat> excuse me, that a a problem that is that is occurring is that the the approach thus far has been to compete with the the import shrimp the commodity shrimp that are coming in and because 90% of the shrimp sold here in the US are imported those imports set the the base price what we call the dock price and there's a point where if the dock price is too low, it's it's literally not worth it to go out because you're you know, what you spend in in fuel and ice and and manpower and all this. It just it costs too much. You're not making. You're losing money. Mm-hmm. And that being said, 
if you get away from that dock price, if you go toward a more uh, upscale pricing uh, market, then you don't have to worry about that competing in a race to the bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my my big first thing was determine which markets are profitable. And, you know, the big ones right now, I think there's a program that Louisiana Sea Grant has been working on called Louisiana Direct Seafood. And it has been an educational portal that allows shrimpers to to learn proper food handling, best practices, and also bring their product direct to consumers. Mm-hmm. And the reason this is so great is that these are consumers who have are they're already on board. They already say, "Great, we want Louisiana seafood. We want high quality, and we're willing to pay for it." So that's pretty much the best market you can have. Those people are evangelists. They're they're singing the praises already. And then the high end retailers are really great as well. These are again something like a Whole Foods where people are going there and they are expecting to pay a premium. You know, when I when I go shopping in my local neighborhood, I can go to a Bromart and a Fresh Market, and I go to those places for different things. Um, if I go to Fresh Market, I know that I'm going to pay up for meat and fish. And I have to make the determination on whether or not that's worth it, but but that's that's a given. And mm-hmm. so getting into the higher-end retailers where people are going in expecting to pay a higher price, also a great, great market. And then restaurants – generally speaking, are, are similar to the, to the direct-to-consumer. Those, those chefs already want the best product they can get. Isaac Toops has a restaurant, Toops Meadery, in town. And I, I uh, talked to him, and he has, a, he has one person he deals with for a shrimp, and they're the freshest, highest quality he can get because he's, he's, not, he's not a red lobster. And you know, I'm not trying to bag on red, right. red lobster, but, <laughs> but they're, they're a commodity shrimp buyer. Isaac is buying really high quality stuff that he can he can present to customers who are looking for that high quality. He's famous for it. And then the last one is actually really interesting, um, and that's government contracts, uh, which it's a recent development because uh, domestic shrimp were, I think, in 2019, were put on the um, the USDA uh, food commodity list, which means that the government can they, they had not been able to procure domestic shrimp before. And um, the reason that I found that to be an important component of, of the marketplace for Louisiana shrimpers is because it provides a bit of a hedge against uh, market volatility, meaning if there is a standing contract with the U.S. government that says we want 10 million pounds of shrimp a year and it and we want it delivered in – in increments of, you know, 2 million pounds, whatever it is, mm-hmm. then that allows the shrimpers to, to uh, perhaps store frozen shrimp and know that, you know, next month we're going to sell this to the government and, and that's going to allow us to get through a dip in the, in the demand. And so those were the, the, four, the four places that I, I really said, all right, this is where, you know, first steps – Focus on profitable markets and don't try and compete with the the dock price, the commodity shrimp, because it's a it's a losing proposition on a lot of levels. So, were you also looking at environmental impact and in a sustainability chain? Absolutely. There's 
So the the historic um, hydrology of of the Louisiana fishery is that basically the Mississippi River built Louisiana over thousands and thousands of years, and the river was continually changing course about once every five hundred years. And so when you when you look at the different uh, bayous going down um, through Louisiana, if, if you look at you know a satellite photo or something, you can see them. And those are the former beds of the Mississippi. And in the colonial times, really, I mean, the early 1700s were the first efforts at levying the Mississippi. And not at all like the levee system we have now, but they were they were small levees that protected the settlements. And as time went on, the, the levees became more complex and bigger. And it was finally after the, the uh, Great Flood of 1927, which was the biggest national disaster in U.S. history, it was it was very devastating. The levee system was federalized, and the Mississippi River was was severely contained. And what happened was that the seasonal flooding, which allowed the river to to flow, to flow over its banks and deposit sediment all through Louisiana, that that system was stopped. And the way it worked was the the river would flood. It had all this mud and and sand and everything in it. And that sand would flow over the land and, and build up layers like a, like a cake. And that allowed the land to keep building. And once you stop that flooding, the land starts to subside. Now, in terms of the fishery, what happens is that sediment, new sediment is not being introduced. And so the wave action from storms and the general subsidence of the land as it sinks because it's not being built up that increases what they call edge. An edge would be in a bay, for instance, you have the, as the, as the land wears away, you sort of get these little fingers poking out into the water. And the edge is where life begins. And so the more edge you have, in theory, the more prolific your fishery, the more shrimp you have, because they have more habitat to breed in, etc. The problem is that there is a tipping point where you have too much edge and the whole thing collapses. And we are teetering on the brink of that tipping point. So there has been a huge effort to create mitigation efforts in the form of sediment diversions. And what these do basically is you poke a hole in the levee and you allow the river to flow into different areas and, dep- and start depositing that sediment again. And that sediment load will help to stabilize the fishery. And it's been super controversial because it will affect the fisheries. It'll affect things like dolphin habitat, which, um, you know, is not so much a fishery concern, but it is, uh, there are environmental groups that are very concerned about that. It affects the, uh, the shrimping in particular with the brown shrimp, because the brown shrimp, which are the, the spring uh, catch typically, and the, the white shrimp are, are the fall, um, the brown shrimp prefer a uh, higher level of salinity. And so when you introduce fresh water, the brown shrimp don't like it, and they, they leave. They move out. They move they further move, out into uh, the Gulf, closer well, to the Gulf? Well, they move to a saltier area. So they will leave that area of the fishery. It's not that they die or they right. or whatever, but, but mm-hmm. the people who have traditionally shrimped in, for instance, in Barataria Bay, if you're an inland shrimper going for brown shrimp, and they introduce freshwater, you're going to have to go to a different place to catch them mm-hmm. if that's what you're counting on. 
Um, so there are some, some impacts there. And that impacts a lot of things because if you do have to go farther, then oftentimes you're going to need a bigger boat. And to your point about financial records, how do you get a bigger boat if you can't demonstrate income for a loan, for instance? And you're using more fuel too. Exactly. So there are some significant impacts there, but, you know, they just came out with the environmental impact statement for the the Mid-Baritaria sediment diversion. They came out with it two months ago, maybe. And it's, I haven't, I haven't read the the thing because it's several thousand pages and it's, um, it's an incredible amount of information. Um, I spoke with uh, Steve Cochran. He is with the Environmental Defense Fund and he's been involved in it uh, quite a bit. And it is the first time that the, the science has been gathered on the potential impacts both to the environment and to the fisheries. It's a, it's a huge step. And they modeled it sort of on a worst case scenario in terms of impacts, mm-hmm. which was important because you don't, you don't want to, you want to prepare for the worst. Exactly. Of course. And so they, they, they modeled it on that, which basically is the river. Uh, if it goes over 450,000 cubic feet per second, that's the, that's the, the point where they could open this this uh, sediment diversion. And it could go all the way up to, you know, when you're approaching a million cubic feet per second, you're, you're getting to flood stage. So all that, you know, roughly 500,000 cubic feet per second window is when you could be having the sediment diversion open, which the sediment diversion is going to, the max flow is, uh, I think, 75,000 cubic feet per second. It's a lot of water. It's a lot of sediment. Mm Mm-hmm. And so they wanted to model these impacts to find out, can we stabilize the, the environment? And, and it looks like the answer is yes. Um, there's a lot of, of uh, work to do with the communities because adding water from the Mississippi is going to change things. It's going to change the, the fisheries. Oysters. I mean, yep. and the oysters can't go anywhere. Yeah. They'll have to reseed the oysters someplace else. Um, which is doable. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of controversy in Louisiana around the, the oyster industry. It's, um, you'll, you'll hear the term oyster mafia thrown around every once in a while. And the, the way that the leases are set up is such that the holder of the lease owns the mineral rights, which means that there are oyster leases, which have never had oysters in them. They have Oil wells. wells. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of people don't think that's fair. Uh, so it, it's, there's a lot of controversy with, with that. And, you know, along with, you know, places like Grand Bayou, if you go to Grand Bayou, I mean, if you had six inches of water, the path between your house and your dock are underwater. Um, if they have fixed docks, the dock is underwater. So there are a lot of, of components that are really tough with the, with the diversions. But the long view is the, the actual viability of the fishery itself. So, you know, I, I talked about the um, environmental uh, sort of mitigation efforts, such as the, the diversions as, as a necessity when I, in my research and I, I, I really think that, that they are. I don't think that the, the uh, fishery will survive without some effort on our part to 
to bring things back into balance. Um, you know, it's uh, the control of nature is John McPhee's book, where he goes really in depth on the the way that the system works and how engineering efforts have have broken the system on a lot of levels. And so you have to kind of reverse that. And do you think that some of the dread, not only controlling the river to keep it from overflowing its banks, which it's done for thousands of years, but um, the continuing uh, deeper dredging of the river to take um, deeper and deeper draft vessels for navigation, um, do you think that that has had anything to do with it? Uh, Not not really, except in the sense that because because the the river is the the length of the river where where the mouth of the river is the only reason that it goes that far out in the gulf is because of the levees and so what you have is the the sediment load right now is basically being pushed off the continental shelf i mean the the flow of the river just it's, right. it just goes to nowhere right so on the level that um, the so sediment, it's not rebuilding right. at all, yeah. You know, so on that level, yeah, but that's that's not particularly because of the depth. That's more of just the just fact the that the levee system, yeah, it's just yeah. going out. Um, you know, and and there there's also the effect of of the there's a they call it a dead zone around the mouth of the river, and that's more due to the uh, pollution of the river, and a lot of that has to do with agriculture upstream. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the fertilizer that gets washed into the, the tributaries of the, uh, that feed the Mississippi and then, and then flow down, um, make it a, uh, a bad zone for, for, for fish out there. And so you have to go beyond that to, to catch fish. So that, that's another impact, but that's, uh, it's a slightly different issue. I think it's really interesting, especially the loss of land, because I think, what we're talking about is loss of land oh, ultimately. So you you lose the hurricane protection that that land provides, um, but also I see it described often as Louisiana's problem, mm-hmm. and I feel like we are losing land of the United States. Right. And I don't really understand why it all falls on Louisiana to fix the problem because in other states, if they were losing land, they'd be screaming that the United States is getting smaller and, um, you know, and it would, everyone would rally to worry about the problem. But here it's so narrowly focused and framed as a Louisiana problem. It's, it's really interesting. You know, there, there is, this gets into a, a different conversation, but, Part of the issue there, I think, is the narrative work that has been done. Because we haven't really discussed it, but a lot of the the complications with land loss are due to the canals and, and the structures. The petroleum industry. Right. Oil and gas has thousands of miles of canals that they've built for, for wells throughout the state and pipelines and different things that... In, in theory, once they are done with a site, they are supposed to mitigate, they're supposed to bring it back to the original state. So if they if they dredge through a swamp, they are supposed to fill that canal back in, replant, all that. 
that has never been enforced. And the narrative is that the jobs and the revenue for the state come from oil and gas. And that used to be true. Um, it, it, it did up until I would say the, the early eighties, that was largely true. The oil and gas industry provided jobs and revenue and, and everything. But what has happened is that the industry, the oil industry has become much more efficient and smaller, uh, with the, the current environmental trends, things are moving away from oil and gas. Not that it'll never disappear. I don't think it's ever going to be gone, but the fact that, you know, I think Ford and GM have said by 2035, they're not going to produce any more internal combustion engines. Mm-hmm. And that just means that the, the industry is getting smaller. And yet the narrative is still that we have to coddle oil and gas. And that's largely through tax breaks. Um, you know, I think that uh, the tax revenue for Louisiana uh, facilities is something like 5% of the tax revenue that Texas gets. It's I might be wrong on that number, but it's wildly smaller. And the incentives given are just incredible. And that's been a rubber stamp for a long, long time. And so there is, there's a problem with um, holding industry accountable to mitigate the effects of the, of the, the work that they've done. Um, and so that, that, that's a, a really tough um, narrative shift because people have have been brought up their whole lives on that well and also so many of the people in fishing use their boats also with in the petroleum industries um spending Mm -hmm. so that often supports their boats right so uh they're not going to be screaming too loud either yeah it's definitely a challenge and it's it's a tough conversation because it's it's really difficult to get everyone in the room Talk, first of all, talking to each other and then um, be able to have a, a real base level conversation and get the numbers in there. Because what I have found is that a lot of time people are, are sort of telling their own story and it it's anecdotal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's part of the importance of this environmental impacts uh, study that just came out. It's the first time that they got together and said, let's, let's look at the numbers. Let's quantify this. Right. Yes. We can all, at least we can, you don't have to like the facts, but here they are. Mm-hmm. So I, that's a super important step. Well, thanks so much for being here. This has been a really great conversation. I feel like we could just keep talking about it. <laughs> it's, it is endless. <laughs> so I thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to come speak with you. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.